This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132. Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Today is the National Day of Mourning for 41st President, U.S. President George Herbert Walker Bush. His life of service to this country began when he fought in World War II and continued well after his time in the White House. After he was praised for his foreign policy, he also had a lot of success on domestic policy. We're going to look at how he did on the regulatory and economic fronts. Bush was most identified with the six words he uttered during the 1988 presidential campaign, Read My Lips. No new taxes. It was one of the reasons why he was elected, and it was one of the reasons why he lost his reelection bid in 1992 as he opted to break that pledge, much to the dismay of conservatives. His work on deficit reduction, repairing the banking industry, and on trade, in part, led to the growth in the 1990s. With more on the regulatory and economic policy legacy of the late President Bush, we're joined on the phone by Kent Smetters, who is a professor in the Department of Business Economics and Public Policy here at the Wharton School. He is also a faculty research fellow uh, at the National Bureau of Economics and faculty director of the Penn Wharton Budget Model. He also spent uh, a year in the George W. Bush administration working uh, under uh, the President Bush's, H.W. Bush's son. Also with us is William K. Black, associate professor, excuse me, associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He was also a white collar criminologist, former financial regulator and author of the book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Kent, William, Bill, great to have you with us today. Thank you both. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kent, obviously that 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 term, no new taxes, really resonated with a lot of voters uh, going back to 1988. But when you think overall of, of what President Bush did in his time, both as vice president and president, what are the what are the most uh, moments that stand out the most to you in terms of policy and the economy? Um, sure. I mean, in his break in the no new tax pledge, obviously, <laughs> when shouldn't break their pledges, and a lot of, uh, you know, experts believe that's the reason why he lost re-election, having been so popular the year before with the Gulf War uh, victory. Uh, at the same time, the, the budget was out of, the, out of control, and he faced a Democrat House, Democrat Senate, and so this is what he viewed as a compromise, and he was a president ultimately of compromises and trying to really think through uh, the sensible economics. He was also the last president that really tried to have the economic policy have some some independence still in the White House. In particular, uh, when Bill Clinton was elected, he decided he, he, did, he was tired of the you know, Council of Economic Advisors having this you know, independent view on things that happened very much during the Reagan era when Marty Saltstein uh, basically stood up to the administration about the deficits and, you know, talked publicly about the problems there. And so Bill Clinton didn't want that anymore. He wanted to very much have the economists be fall in line with the White House's view. So he created what's called the National Economic Council, which uh, very much politicized all the economics inside of the administration. 
And so um, and that, that NEC has stayed with us today. And so every president um, since H.W. Um, Bush has kept the NEC, and it's, it's also made the CEA very competitive internally for, in a very political way. And so I, I think, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, the president, it's not just what President Bush did, but what he didn't do is that he maintained the, the tradition of keeping economic policy, have some, some independence, having a clear voice, and um, you know, essentially he understood that things on trade, on regulation, on other, uh, other issues uh, were uh, ultimately involved compromises. Bill, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, I was uh, a regulator under uh, Presidents Reagan uh, and uh, the first President Bush. So uh, my emphasis, of course, was on policy towards uh, savings and loans uh, during the heart of the savings and loan crisis. And there you saw uh, President uh, Bush at uh, – and indeed Vice President Bush um, – at both his uh, worst and uh, best. Um, and people are not cardboard figures. Uh, they're rarely uh, – pure uh, evil or pure good, or, uh, and uh, these are human beings uh, with uh, uh, very different strengths and weaknesses that come out in different periods. Well, in that time, then, when you think about the the SNL crisis, uh, obviously we're talking about uh, the banking industry, which was going through an incredibly rigorous and, and struggling time at that period, correct? Yes, and it was it went through a crisis that was uh, in large part self-created uh, by policy uh, and the policy of uh, really substantial deregulation, desupervision, and de facto decriminalization, the three Ds as we call them, uh, at a period when the industry was massively insolvent. So even from a very conventional economist standpoint, uh, you would have said this is the worst possible environment in which to uh, embrace the three Ds. And then Vice President Bush was in charge of the key uh, financial deregulatory uh, committee uh, that uh, created the, these policies. Uh, now, you can say in his defense they were very much conventional uh, economic wisdom, even though, as I said, they were under – conventional economic theory, insane to do at that time period. Um, but uh, that kicked off the crisis, and uh, George Akerlof and Paul Romer, both now Nobel laureates, have a wonderful article, if people are interested, looting the economic um, underworld of bankruptcy for profit, uh, where the concluding paragraph says uh, economists uh, did not understand that this kind of uh, deregulation and desupervision was bound to produce widespread looting. Um, so uh, that kicked off the by far the worst phase of the crisis. It was an enormous uh, public policy disaster. So uh, take us in, into that time since you you have that background with, with both administrations, Bill, and, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on how President H.W. Bush, uh, Bush 41, was he when he was voted in to office uh, in 1988? How much was he set by the policies that had been in place by Ronald Reagan over the prior eight years? 
so that is actually fascinating, and it's fascinating uh, in distinction to uh, Obama uh, coming in uh, after the policies of, of course, the the president, the H.W. Uh, uh, son, uh, folks we usually call W. Um, so the policy, as I said, of uh, the extreme embrace of the three Ds, was a policy that uh, Vice President uh, Herbert Walker Bush uh, strongly supported. But he uh, was determined, uh, I think quite appropriately uh, in terms of a politician, of saying, I inherited this crisis, uh, the savings and loan debacle uh, from President Reagan. And while I'm not going to attack him, I'm going to mark a sharp departure. The problem was this. There was an enormous cover-up of the scale of the savings and loan debacle and the fact that there was going to have to be a massive uh, bailout. And that was done by uh, Danny Wall, a President Reagan appointee, head of the federal agency. Actually, he was pretty open about it, (laughs) that, of course, he was a loyal Republican and he was going to literally lie. Um, and say that there wasn't going to be any need for a federal bailout, which was preposterous, right? And so when uh, President uh, Herbert Walker Bush was uh, successfully elected, he rewarded Danny Wall, even though Danny Wall was the the most notorious uh, financial regulator in the United States by then because he had given in to Charles Keating's demands. And in particular, had removed our jurisdiction over Lincoln Savings, the worst fraud, because we um, continued to insist, despite the pressure of the five U.S. senators, the Keating Five, that the institution uh, be closed. Right. So um, Herbert Walker Bush is faced with this dilemma. He has to change policy dramatically. But he feels he has to reward Danny Wall for this loyal service in helping to get him elected. So the president adopts the new president adopts this compromise. One, he will say openly um, as a top priority, we need a bailout. And this becomes the and he does this promptly. It's his first really big domestic initiative in many ways. Um, the 1989 legislation that will be called FREA, which is the bailout and to some extent an increase in supervisory powers. But second, because he feels this need to tie himself to Danny Wallen, because it, he cannot go through um, normal confirmation hearings for a host of political reasons, um, not just on his part because of the embarrassment to the Senate, he unconstitutionally appoints Danny Wall by legislation yeah. without the advice and consent of the Senate to yeah. uh, be the director. And he's told this is going to likely be considered unconstitutional. It is ruled unconstitutional. Uh, Danny Wall is horribly embarrassed in a whole series of hearings that Henry B. Gonzalez um, holds that uh, against the will of the Democratic Party, and Gonzalez was a Democrat, that uh, exposed all this uh, political corruption and such. And so uh, Herbert Walker Bush uh, ultimately has to tell uh, Danny Wall to resign. So that's the bad stuff. The good stuff 
is then he appoints, uh, he, Herbert Walker Bush, appoints Tim Ryan and gives him a mandate, as Tim Ryan personally told me, right. to put prominent heads on pikes. Oh, God. And so Tim huh. Ryan transforms all kinds of things yeah. uh, in enforcement. And then we'll discuss later, this is also when the Department of Justice finally gets on board and makes a major priority about prosecuting uh, the frauds like Charles Keating. Yeah, you know, Kent, one of the other areas where uh, it's talked about, and especially more so in the decade of the 90s, uh, involves balanced, bud- uh, balanced budgets. And that became a, uh, a topic under President Clinton. But I'd be interested to know how much of, of what President H.W. Bush started back then may have led to the idea of balanced budgets, budgets as we went through the, the remainder of that decade. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Let me, let me uh, back up in, a, in terms of the regulation. I completely agree with everything that was just said. I mean, the real problem with the SNL crisis, and people don't realize how big that really could have been. That would have been a, another Great Depression had there not been government um, bailouts. A lot of that was, of course, you know, when you have this backstop where the government has the back through uh, the insurance programs then you have to have regulation to stop, you know, crazy risk-taking. Um, and, and it was just that awkwardness where you had the government providing all this implicit insurance or explicit insurance, and yet, you know, then not controlling for the moral hazard that's going to ultimately uh, uh, respond uh, from, from, from that. In terms of the, the balanced budget, I mean, we've gone through this wave of, you know, this belief that you know, a president should try to balance the budget, and then it was, well, I don't have to balance the budget year by year, but by by the end of my term, you know, I will be, you know, in balance. And then, you know, as we went moved into the Clinton administration and toward the end of the Clinton administration, where we actually had some good years because of some both fiscal controls on the discretionary side, and plus. Uh, there was what, what economists refer to as stat, and that is an unexplained increase in revenue um, that you know was a big surprise. Um, but it, 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 it started to move, and, and including in the administration I served in, uh, uh, W. Bush, uh, toward you know it doesn't even have to be balanced toward you know at the end of my term or my administration just at the end of the 10-year budget. So, right. you know, now I'm kicking the can down the road for <laughs> some other president. You know, I'll do the tax cuts, I'll do the spending increases, and I'll recommend that the next president, you know, eats the spinach and, you know, uh, has a less chance of being reelected for doing something unpopular. So, and to, by the time we hit the Obama administration, there's not even this uh, desire anymore to have this balanced budget at the end of the 10 years, because people see that's uh, basically impossible. And so the, the discussion now evolved into at least the, de- you know, the debt relative to GDP will not be on an increasing slope anymore. We'll actually get it to a level slope. Of course, not during my administration, but right. some you know, uh, uh, 10 years from, from now. And so the balanced budget is, you know, what's a what, uh, there's conceptual issues with it, because there's ways to trick it. There's all sorts of pay-as-you-go spending programs that you can avoid it being kind of as, as real deficits, even though it's truly a deficit just under a different name. But the bigger thing is, is that it, nowadays we don't even have the, the thought about this fiscal discipline, you know, where, you know, AI, machine learning and all cool stuff is going to save the world. And we don't have to think about 
you know, fiscal discipline, and we're on a path now that the budget is just exploding, deficits are exploding, and, um, uh, and we're going to hit World War II levels of debt relative to GDP. Um, and unlike World War II, though, it's not going to be over. Uh, we're on a, just an increasing arc. And so, you know, it's a very tough problem. Um, the old ways that political, both parties would get along is, hey, Republicans are to get their tax cuts, Democrats get their spending increases, and we'll just add to the debt. We can't keep doing that anymore. We're going to have to you know, pay the piper at some point soon. And so now is we're going to see the big political fights of how we're going to deal with Social Security, which is, you know, the, the trust fund is going to exhaust in just a few years, Medicare Part A, you know, the big entitlement programs. While, you know, spending on, uh, you know, defense has actually gone down relative to GDP, um, discretionary spending has, you know, not a lot of that has happened. So it's a lot of these uh, very third rail politic, you know, entitlement programs that are going to be, you know, that versus tax cuts. Yeah. That's going to be the huge debate going forward. And so what we're seeing today, you know, this, this juvenile, you know, debate uh, and so forth, this is just the, I tell people, this is just the appetizer. Things are going to get even worse um, as, you know, the fiscal constraints tighten. You know, when you think about tax cuts, uh, a lot of people also can't go back uh, to when uh, President Bush was running for the uh, the GOP nomination back yeah. in eighty and, and uh, the the term voodoo economics came into play back then and, and he was not a supporter of, of President Reagan and the idea of tax cuts yet when he became vice president he kind of towed the line and 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 kind of supported that process yeah yeah I mean it's 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 amazing how much expressions a single expression uh, plays in the role of politics especially during the Bush administration I mean. The whole, Lee, I mean, his campaign chairman, you know, Lee Atwater, you know, notorious, but also admired uh, by both sides uh, for being pretty notorious. I mean, and his ability to distill very complex things into catchphrases, including, you know, um, all, everything dealing with the whole Willie Horton stuff, as yeah. well as, you know, the jumper cables, a fiasco, and, uh, and things like that. A lot of stuff he repented for before he passed away, Lee, Lee Atwater. But, um, you know, it, it is, you know, the voodoo economics is, you know, part of all, all of that stuff where it's just a catchphrase that meant nothing. I mean, there's no such thing really as supply-side ec- economics. It's yeah. just been a, an expression that people have used, a trickle-down economics. I mean, there's, this, this, that, that, this, there's really no concept amongst economists of, of that. But, you know, these are catchphrases that try to, was really trying to react against this Keynesian economics ideas, uh, which were also, you know, problematic in many ways. They, they were the wrong solutions for, this, for the oil crisis that was happening in the 1970s, which is the backdrop to all of this. Um, and, but at the same time, um, you know, these catchphrases just were not very useful in, having, in terms of having a serious discussion. But that, that is American politics. Bill? Yeah, so let me first uh, talk about the uh, savings and loan debacle in terms of budgetary games uh, that uh, you you just heard the allusion to. Uh, in jargon, this is called where the you score things uh, for uh, budgetary purposes. If they're not scored, they don't count, right? So the savings and loan debacle, the highest priority of the Reagan administration at all times, the one thing that we absolutely – could not do as regulators uh, was to uh, admit how big the 
um, insolvency was of the industry. Because we did, it was felt that 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 would create the pressure for Congress to score uh, that massive uh, loss, which was in the ballpark of $150 billion, uh, as a further increase in the deficit, uh, which would have been politically, um, you know, incredibly unpalatable, uh, actually to have both parties uh, in terms of their budgetary desires. And so the great lie that was maintained uh, for uh, four solid years uh, or more uh, was that there uh, really was no need uh, for public funding. And, and that's why um, nobody takes the budgetary numbers terribly seriously. Um, uh, Congress's approach uh, was to get the Atwaters of the world, except, uh, you know, in this case, they'd be the technicians uh, who would uh, find ways to scam. And the congressional response to those scams uh, was typically delight, I must tell you, as opposed to horror. Yeah, I, one of the areas, Ken, I wanted to touch on for a couple of seconds was NAFTA, because uh, a, a lot of what is discussed when NAFTA kind of came into being uh, is linked to President Clinton. Uh, and and a lot of it actually was in the bailiwick of, of President Bush as well. Uh, yeah, this is a classic case where, you know, the next president gets credit for what the previous president started. This is this was actually true under the SALT agreement on the Ronald Reagan with the Russians that was actually started by Jimmy Carter. Yeah. <laughs> so Jimmy Carter was viewed weak on, you know, on defense. In fact, the agreement that, you know, Reagan reached with the Russians was pretty much Jimmy Carter's agreement with some modifications so he could call it his own. No, no question, they asked uh, uh, there's no question, you know, uh, Bush was a free trader, and he, like most Republicans, and it's also true he had this view of deregulation as always a good thing, which is obviously not true, when you, especially when the government's creating this moral hazard problem with this being the backdrop, the insurer of last resort. And so, you know, um, that's, it, there's a, a, no, no question that, you know, um, he started it, he, uh, and that, you know, Clinton got a lot of, a lot of the, the, the credit uh, uh, for it. What's interesting uh, in relative to the other guests, which is exactly right, I mean, so much, so many different ways to scam the budget scoring process. Oh, uh, it, it is interesting, in 1990, uh, Congress did pass what's called the Credit Reform Act, which is very far from perfect, that's for sure, um, that kind of recognized that there were some issues with the budget. And of course, it happened, you know, after, um, you know, a lot of this had gone through and, and, and so forth. Um, to try to mop up some of that stuff, but it, 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 it's it's very gameable uh, uh, still as well. But no question, Bush was a, a free trader, uh, traditional Republican in that way, very different than uh, you know what we're seeing today from from uh, some Republicans. Bill, your thoughts on NAFTA and President Bush? Um, I agree that uh, he certainly was uh, an initiator of it, and uh, I, what I think we haven't. Uh, emphasized is really how close the new Democrats and Bill Clinton, Al Gore, uh, these are all uh, new Democrats. Indeed, Obama uh, publicly stated, uh, went in front of the Congressional Caucus, new Democrats, and said, I am a new Democrat. So the leadership of the Democratic Party on 
economic issues it has really been very similar uh, in view, overall viewpoint uh, to uh, the uh, Bush, basically both of the Bushes. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so there really hasn't been uh, uh, until, the, you know, the election of uh, President Trump, that really sharp uh, division along uh, economic uh, lines. Uh, both parties have their variants, uh, as a, your guest uh, has been uh, mentioning. Yes, the Democrats were a bit more in terms of uh, government program increases, and the Republicans were a bit more in terms of tax decreases. But if you ask them how you should run uh, the economy, it, they were variations on a central theme. That's what's broken down uh, in the United States uh, after the election of uh, President Trump. And yeah. it's really unprecedented yeah, for 40 years plus in the United States. Yeah, I mean, to add to that, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that the like, discretionary spending, at least relative to GDP, actually came down on their President Clinton, um, and that it certainly was a sign of some, uh, you know, fiscal discipline. Whereas, you know, things like steel tariffs that happened under uh, W. Bush. I yeah. mean, so these are, you know, sometimes positions that are not commonly aligned with that those respective parties. Um, but all, it's often a sign of politics. It's often a sign of first-term politics trying to get reelected. Um, so there's no, you know, ironclad rule for sure. But there's also, uh, Kent, the fact that uh, uh, President Bush, H.W. Bush, was also uh, uh, part of the uh, of the rundown, uh, the ending of the Cold War as well, which obviously had an impact on, on the types of spending that was going on as well at the time. Sure. I mean, what people don't realize, if you compare, for example, military spending in 1970, relative to, say, 2007, which is a peak spending because we had two active war fronts. In 1970, military spending was almost 8% of GDP. Um, by 2007, it was less than 4% of GDP, and it's now, you know, uh, uh, well, under two, uh, 4%. By 2022, it'll probably be less than 3.5% of GDP. Still the biggest military in the world, but there's no question that, you know, essentially winning the Cold War, uh, you know, allowed for a lot of reprioritizations of spending. At the same time, in, you know, spending entitlement programs, partly because of the baby boomer uh, generation, yeah. partly because of expansions and things like Medicare Part D, which happened under President Bush Jr., you know, W. Uh, Bush, you know, again, one of those things that, you know, you, you don't necessarily as, as associate with a Republican, but, you know, first term wanted to get reelected, um, you know, because of a lot of those expansions to the programs, as well as the aging of the population, we're seeing entitlement growth uh, more than uh, increase. Um, by the decrease in things like military spending. Bill, is it as simple to say that the failure to live up to the no new taxes line in the end did cost President Bush's reelection? Because a lot of people also say with, with President Clinton, he was he was kind of bringing forth a, a movement at that point. Um, it wasn't much of a movement in terms of difference um, for the reasons I've just said. Uh, you have to understand, I mean, the New Democrats literally received funding from the Koch brothers and the Bradley Foundation. Yeah. 
Uh, and I, people may not know what the Bradley Foundation is, but basically it's, you know, the Wisconsin Republican uh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, so really, really <laughs> super partisan Republican. Um, these were financial supporters of the new Democrats. So uh, they did not see themselves as revolutionary, except in the sense of leading a counter-revolution within the Democratic Party to bring the party back to what they would have considered sensibility on both economic and national security type issues. And we've just been discussing that. No, I mean, what, what we haven't mentioned is the economy wasn't doing so great. Right, right. Uh, and that uh, certainly had uh, a very important effect uh, in H.W. Um, uh, Bush's uh, defeat in his uh, re-election efforts. An economist debate um, what kind of role, if any, the savings and loan debacle uh, had uh, in making that recession, A, prompting that recession, and B, um, making it worse. And that's very controversial among uh, economists. Bill, great having you with us today. Kent, thank you as well. My pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.